brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Among other things, music can be medicine. Like a vaccine, it sometimes works by giving your body a little taste of the disease. Other times, of course, you just want to dance, and James Brown might be just what you need. But the medicine songs I'm talking about are the ones that break your heart open, no matter how many times you hear them. And you want them to, because that's what it feels like to be alive. Nobody knows this better than my guest today, singer-songwriter Aeneas Mitchell. Like the centuries of blues and folk songs that echo through it, transubstantiated by her voice and guitar into something almost too beautiful to bear, her music is powerful medicine. Aeneas wrote all the songs, lyrics, and the book of the new Broadway musical Town, directed by Rachel Chavkin. It makes new again the ancient story of the singer-songwriter Orpheus and his lover Eurydice, who he follows all the way to hell and leads most of the way back. Welcome to Think Again, Aeneas. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. You've been living with this story for a long time, right? I mean, I was just listening to the song Hades and Persephone on your 2007 album, The Brightness. Did this start as just the myth spoke to you and then you wrote a song and then gradually this evolved into the musical? Yeah, it's it's been a super long road with this thing. And I had no idea that I'd still be working on it now. You know, that that song that you're talking about um, is still in the show and is now called How Long. Right. And it wasn't the first song I wrote for the show. It didn't come as a sort of standalone. Like the idea for the song cycle or the retelling of the story through song came kind of early on. And I was just getting going with a songwriter career. I was driving in my car like, a ridiculous long distance between two gigs. And I I was thinking about my partner at home, who is my boyfriend, who now I'm married to. It was just a long time ago. And mm. I, I was sort of hoping he would like wait for me <laughs> to do my sort of running around that I seemed to be needing to do in the songwriter world. And that I would come back to him. And I remember these lines came into my head that went, wait for me, I'm coming. 
in my garters and pearls, with what melody did you barter me from the wicked underworld? And there's just these, this like flash of inspiration, which doesn't, you know, those things, that's usually how a thing starts for me. But then the rest of it is just like hours, weeks, months, years of labor to try to bring it to fruition, you know? Does it start with words usually, like bits of words, or does it start with fragments of melody sometimes, or They usually, they come together, Uh, the melody and the words, you know? There are Um, a lot of these, a lot of songs of yours that have these kind of like haunting melodic breaks in them. I don't, you know, like Any Way the Wind Blows has that sort of melody, which is, it sounds to me like if the wind could sing, that's that's what it would sing. Oh, that's so Um, cool. Any way the wind blows There's a bunch of them where I hear where there are these they're in the realm of nursery rhyme but so much more powerful. Yeah, yeah. I love that you say that. Like I I mean melodies are so strange cuz there's not that many notes in the scale. Do you know what I mean? There's not, there's not that many notes that could happen. Right, right, <laughs> um, right. And it right. sort of feels like... Unless you have a sitar, maybe. Right? Yeah, right. You could get into some alternate <laughs> scales and stuff. But it's almost like it's enough. We have 11 notes and it's enough. And for me, like the, the melodic stuff is always really feels intuitive. And it feels like it's it comes out of the ground the way that folk music does, you know? Mm. I like that you said nursery rhyme because I think there is this sort of hazy middle ground between nursery rhyme and folk song and um like there's a there's a folk song i really love this uh, this called green rocky road it evolved over you know centuries with the line goes green green rocky road promenading green tell me who do you love tell me who do you love and just that phrase promenading green is so beautiful and strange and I think it actually came, I think originally or at some point in its life, it used to become You Ladies Green. And mm. that ended up sounding like Promenading Green. But that, that always has sounded to me like a nursery rhyme. And I think there is something about nursery rhymes that feels like it's just intuitive. Like nobody wrote that. It just came out of the ground. And that's making me think also of fairy tales and the way that fairy tales originally were much darker than the way that we know them. And, and there's also that... There's also that in Greek myth a little bit, like that sort of openness and possibility of the nursery rhyme, but with this level of threat to it, which I think is very much present in in Town, I think, and in your music generally. Oh, cool. Yeah, you know, I um, this is an aside, but... Um... You might have to heavily edit this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going in all directions. But I have a five-year-old daughter, mm. and um, she's very interested in storytelling, although she doesn't like conflict, and she's easily, like, scared by bad guys <laughs> and stuff. Um, so it's a problematic because, there's a, you know, you can't really get into a story without that <laughs> moment coming. Right, right, right. But we were, we, we were driving in the car recently, and she was in the back seat, and she goes, okay, guys, to me and my, to, and my partner. She's like, let's, like, recap, <laughs> like various um, fairy tales she'd heard and she was like let's do Cinderella and so we were like okay so we we told the story of Cinderella and then my husband was like and did you know there was a previous version of that story in which the stepsister cuts off her toes to try to fit into the glass slipper silence from the car seat you know (laughs) just like it's so intense you know the origins of those stories I don't want to be sexist but kind of count on the dad to do that yeah 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 right (laughs) totally Uh, I got you 
I saw Hades Town uh, on Saturday. It'll be several Saturdays ago by the time this is this show is released, and it's very beautiful. And I'm almost I'm almost hesitant to talk about it because there is so there's so much going on that is kind of beneath the level of language or above or around whatever. But it feels like first of all, there's like many overlapping fragments of story and history and song. You know, I mean, I know that like at the core, it's it's Orpheus and Eurydice, it's Hades and Persephone, but it feels like there's like a hundred, a thousand, you know, echoes of story going on in there. It's a very unusual piece for music theater, I think, because it is. Um Rachel Chavkin talks about it a lot as very delicate, like easily broken mm. in terms of the wrong set choice or the wrong costume can mess with it because it is a poem and not a prose piece. And it's right. like it exists in this, you know, Hades Town is a place, but it's not based on a particular time and place. It's it's mythic. It takes inspiration from the Depression era, New Orleans, yeah, stuff like that, Orleans, Americana yeah. stuff. But it could be anywhere. And it's it's a very elemental story. And so I think a lot of times it just is very delicate how we stage it and how we present it. Um, I mean, what was it like for you writing for this stage in that way and trying to understand how the thing that you do translates into that. Totally. Yeah, so, okay, so I'm driving in my car, those yeah, lyrics yeah. came into my head, <laughs> and I was like, it seems like that's about the Eurydice myth. And so it came from this very mysterious place, and then I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to try to make a cycle of songs tell a story? Mm. Um, and I was living in Vermont at the time. I had some early artist friend collaborators, Michael Chorney, who's still one of our orchestrators, okay. and and an early director, Ben Matchstick, who came out of the bread and puppet kind of radical right. theater world in Vermont, and a bunch of friends of ours from different bands around Vermont. And we all sort of came together as a community to put on the show, this early version of the show. In Vermont. In Vermont, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was very, I mean, it was um, totally DIY, like just scraped it together, rehearsed for two weeks, you know, performed in town halls and music venues, a couple of like opera houses that are like these small opera houses that are in Vermont. And it was a much different version of the piece because it was, there was a lot less material. It was more abstract. There were a lot more sort of long interludes of just instrumental music and kind of visual things happening. So it was like more of a performance art piece that hadn't yet been given enough of a through line to be sort of a a play, as it were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, know, which, you, like, you I think to... your work still resists that. I think Hades Town on Broadway still resists that, but we still have a sort of a thread of a queer story. I'd have to, like, ask someone who saw <laughs> it back then to to know what they were getting from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think there was a lot of magic in that abstract version of it. And I think people just had to fill in a lot more blanks themselves. And so. Which can be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. It depends. It's like what floats your boat, right? I mean, in terms of storytelling. And so we did that for two years, and then I wanted to make a recording of the music, and I started to work with Todd Sikafus, who's our other orchestrator, and these guest singers, Justin Vernon and Ani DeFranco. And I was on Righteous Babe Records at the time, and right. um, so Righteous Babe put out that studio record of the music. And, and that album was, again, another step forward in terms of there were more songs that had never been in the original stage production. And it felt very complete as an audio document. You know, it felt right. like this was a musical statement that we all felt like proud to stand behind. And I think still, again, people were filling in a lot of blanks 
in terms of the story. And and you're sort of game to do that on a record. So we toured with that music for a few years just as a concert. And then I wanted to see the piece staged again. And it took a while to figure out like how to do it, you know, who to work with. And I found Rachel Chavkin because I saw this show, The Great Comet of 1812. Did oh, you, right, right, do you right. know about this? I have not. I didn't. Well, like many New Yorkers, I see almost no shows because yeah. they're just too expensive. <laughs> totally. But, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I know. I saw it um, when it was a cheap ticket, um, <laughs> when it was at Ars Nova, which is like a 50-seat theater, you know. And right. it was just this gigantic show, just in terms of its spirit, you know, spiritually gigantic. Mm. And there was a lot of people in it, but not as many as there ended up being on Broadway. And um, the writer of it is Dave Malloy, just for, so people know. Okay. And um, it felt so delightful from moment to moment. And I remember thinking, seeing it at Ars Nova, I was like, this belongs on Broadway. I don't know how that's going to happen, but that should happen. And it, and it ended up happening. And, and a big reason is, is Rachel Chavkin, who's, who is the director of that show and who mm. um, has a real talent for all of her instincts are kind of downtown, edgy, thrilling, delightful, political, downtown vibes. Right. But she also is just operating at such a high level in terms of production values that... Amplify the downtown into something yeah. that scales up to Broadway. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So I've, I found Rachel through that show and I reached out to her and uh, started working with her about six years ago. And, we, and so there's been a whole era of developing the piece further. Mm for the stage. So for me coming from the music world and the songwriting world, I'm very sort of comfortable with the form of a three and a half minute song where you just are gonna hang out in that space of a three three and a half minute song. And you don't ask much more of the song than that it sort of distills and dilates the moment for you. So you just hang out in that space. And um, I think people that saw the version of Hadestown that we did off-Broadway right. a few years ago, they were asked to be quite patient with the storytelling in terms of like, okay, here's this, you know, let's hang out in this song for three and a half minutes. And there may or may not be a change that takes place, an event, a revelation, right, right, <laughs> a decision, <right. laughs> A leads to B type of thing. And that is the sort of, the, that is what I think is required of storytelling on the stage is that you're sort of following the thread moment to moment with a character. And so, so it took a long time to figure out how to interweave that stuff with the songs that existed and without breaking what felt like the structural integrity of the music, you know? There's something not not just really nice, but almost, I'd say, holy about the space of just like you and the guitar and the paper, you know? I bet you were delighted in what was able to happen with all those people coming in and adding their voices to it. On the other hand, I would think that would take some adjustment after being mostly uh, just writing your own songs. Probably like 80% being in a room with, Rachel, designers, orchestrators, the actors is really life-giving and energizing because most of the time it's me in a room, mm-hmm. you know, and it's literally like right now where I work is this, it's like a closet. <laughs> it's like a drum. It's a place where like a drummer might practice in a band practice space okay. in Gowanus. Like there's no window. It's a concrete room. And um <laughs> It's me in like a space heater, you know, wow. just trying to write rhymes and and I'm I'm quite slow. So it's, you know, it's me there for like all day and maybe there's one good rhyme, which means two good lines that go together, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, that's a good day. And so it feels like there's a limit to what I can do. I mean, it's, 
it's exciting to have taken those songs and get to see them celebrated and dressed up, you know, yeah. and interpreted by these actors. And then 20%, the other 20% is like, oh my God, everyone has an opinion about right. this needs to get cut. This is, this can't get cut. Are you ever surprised at the inner fascist that is like, this word goes here? If I feel strongly about a thing, I won't let it go. Uh-huh. I might let it go for a moment and then I'll realize I need it back. Mm. And that that process has happened many times mm. in the over the course of years. And then there's also, I mean, I do feel, I feel lucky that I, I trust the people I'm working with. Right. Even, I shouldn't say even, but <laughs> even our producers, you know, I think there, there are different kinds of producers and ours have been very art first and trusting of my instincts and Rachel's. And I, va- I also value their input because they're, they're talking to a lot of other people. There, there are notes from people. And there are things that I can't see because I've just been living with it for so long. Right. You know, for mm-hmm. me, it all makes perfect sense. But for someone else, they're like, wait, so Orpheus needs to have a ticket to go there? Or like, how, how did he get to <laughs> Hadestown without a ticket? <laughs> you know, right. there's like housekeeping, logistical things that I might not even notice that other people do notice. So right. it's a lot of push and pull with that stuff. What I like about what you do is that, you know, in the same way that you're doing with Hadestown, like on XOA, you go back to so many songs that are on earlier albums, but it doesn't feel like here comes Aeneas just kind of like gathering all her old songs. You don't feel uncomfortable inhabiting and coming back to and sort of like reaching into the older work, which feels like a very kind of anti-corporate, anti-product model, very different from the way the music industry typically works. Huh. Like you can dwell in these themes and, and they're just as alive as they, they were initially, or you can develop it further. They mean different things after a certain amount of time goes by. This is the crazy thing about songs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Which sometimes... is a theme in Hadestown, by the way. I'm sorry, uh, I, I don't no, want to no, interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah. That is a theme that comes up like very much at the end of Hadestown, where, you, where you're like, these are the old songs, but we're going to sing them anyway. We're going to keep singing them. Yeah. You know. Let's, yeah, let's... that's right. I didn't make that connection, but you're totally right. And I think, you know, sometimes going back to a song that I've left behind, I'm able to inhabit it in a more honest way than I might have when I was singing it every night, you know, Mm. at a time in my life when I was singing it every night and it felt like a rote (laughs) thing. Right, like Um, uh, what's that Paul Simon line, all my words come back to me and shades shades of of mediocrity. mediocrity, (laughs) Yeah, that's real. Oh, he's so good. Yeah, Yeah. so that Axaway recording was made um, in Nashville with this producer, Gary Pachosa, who also recorded a um, album I made of traditional right, ballads right. with Jefferson Hamer and child ballads. Yeah. And he's so good. He and his engineers, Brandon Bell, worked on that, both records. They're so good at just capturing acoustic instruments and voices. It's really like, that's, I think, one of their superpowers. Um, what guitar are you playing on that? What, or is I might it several have been multiple? Playing, you know, I think I, I thought about switching them up and then I ended up just for variety and I ended up mostly playing the guitar that was my main guitar at the time, which was um, a Kalamazoo guitar. Right. Do you know right, those? Right. They're like the cheap, they were like the cheap Gibson and they don't have a truss rod. They're very light. Yeah. And they have this very strange, like sort of loud for their size sound. But it's such a warm rich sound. Oh, that's cool. You know, I I came up 
listening to folk music and singer-songwriter culture, kind of like Boston, Cambridge scene, like right. Dar Williams and, you know, Ani DeFranco and you know, so many artists in, sort of in the 90s there where it was just... Um, I, yeah, it was, it was this moment where like the music industry felt like it had discovered this concept of the singer-songwriter, yeah. which of course has existed forever. Yeah, that's so real. Since totally. Orpheus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I always... I never needed anything more than a, than than one person with a guitar. Like mm. I, you know, to hear someone, in a sense, it's almost like seeing a poet at a podium, right. right? It's like you're there for the words and the and the melodies, which are the emotional sort of counterpart of the words. Right. And I I never needed to hear it fleshed out more than that. That's funny because my. My partner plays bass, and, and I, I notice this with different musicians I play with. Like, he'll be listening to music, the same music I'm listening to, and he's listening to the bass line, you know? Right. And I have no right. idea what the bass is doing because I'm listening to the words and the melody. My wife hears my wife hears melody where I, like, she never hears words. Oh, yeah. And and I hear the, if I don't like the words, I can't, it becomes un, absolutely impossible. For yeah. Me. And yeah. I feel like maybe you're rare. Like, <laughs> I feel like most people are listening to the music first, right? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I remember having this feeling like when, my heroes would start to get sort of successful. My singer-songwriter heroes would like start to get a little more money and then they could afford to have a band and then they'd be in the studio doing all kinds of shit with their, right, right. you know, with the production of the records. And I would be like, oh, I miss it when it was just acoustic. It's and, like uh, that Bob Dylan moment where he alienated everybody at whatever festival that oh, was yeah, by yeah. playing electric Legendary guitar. Newport moment. Yeah. But it's funny because then, you know, once I started making records and did get like a little more money to make them with, I was like, great, let's get a band in here and let's work with producers and make it happen. And there is so much that can, I, I have, you know, utmost admiration and respect for instrumental players, arrangers, producers, and what can be created sonically on record. But when I made that XOA record, I was kind of like, I think I should just go back and play them like I would play them in my bedroom, you yeah. know, just to have that, just to have a document of that. It's so pure. I mean, literally, I am weeping half the time listening to that. Oh, I'm that's like, like awesome. Per particularly that song, oh my God, you know, that, well, first of all, I thought it was Hebrew you were speaking on it. What are what is what, what is it? Oh, Arabic in yeah, fact. Yeah, it's I, Iraqi dialect of Arabic. Okay, all right. So initially I heard it and I heard like dodi and I heard I heard certain words that I recognized as Hebrew, but of course those languages related. are closely related, yeah. yeah. What is that song called again? Two Kids. Yeah, Two Kids. I mean, God. Uh, yeah, every I, I can't get through that one without weeping. Oh man. Um I feel that way now too like I, I <laughs> It's hard to play that one sometimes live, especially with the stuff that has been happening in Syria because that song, just to go back into it, I wrote that when I was pretty young and um, I studied abroad uh, in Egypt when I was in college. Right. And so I was in Cairo okay. and I, um, I did some traveling around in the region and my friend and I were in Syria and we went to this little town called Deir Azur, um, which is close to the Iraqi border. And we checked into this hotel it was like the cheapest hotel in the lonely planet guidebook of syria and wow. um we got there and there's just like lovely man behind the counter the proprietor of the hotel and he saw that i had a guitar and so he thought like we must be kindred spirits and he said he was a poet and he pulled out like these books these chat books he had created mm. um of poetry and he started to like read them to us and we hadn't even checked into our hotel room yet. And I told him that I was working on this song 
about two children, an American child and an Iraqi child. And this was during the Iraq War. Right. And um, he said he would write me a verse for the Iraqi child in Iraqi dialect because he spoke that. And so he did actually write pages and pages of a poem that I could only use part of. Okay. But that's what that verse is. Okay, so that's his writing. Mm -hmm. okay, and cool. so I think about, I mean, I, I think about him and I think about Syria a lot when I sing that now, which I don't often. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Orpheus, you know, it's interesting, it's not an accident, it may not have been conscious on your part or whatever, but that, you know, he is also, in a sense, the original singer-songwriter figure that we have. And I find the sort of the central theme in Hadestown about sort of what music can do and what it can't do. And we have Hades kind of set up as what feels like almost the industrial structure of the world, the corporate structure, it feels like money, it feels like making a living as against poetry, art, you know, things that are, this thing that is harder to quantify, which is what you do and what you've been trying to do for all these years. Oh, there's like so many different ways I could go with that question. But yeah, I think, you know, one interesting thing is that the Orpheus character for sure has been the hardest one to write for this piece. And in fact, he has evolved a lot in just the last few months between London and Broadway. Okay. People right away were connecting with characters like Hades and Persephone and... Eurydice and the Fates, you know, Hermes, I think all of those characters are kind of jaded, you know, in their way. Right. They all are sort of like been there, seen that. There's like a ruined quality to them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, which right. we, it's like easy to identify with. And Persephone, I have to say in the production, who's, play, who's playing yeah, Persephone? Yeah, Amber Gray. She's extraordinary. She is. Like carrying that sort of, that decadent, 
almost like Weimar Republic kind of passion, you yes. know, like, like we're all going to die. So let's party. Kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Orpheus character has always been, I think because in the original mythology, his main, you know, mythic qualities are that a, he does, he attempts the impossible thing, right? right. He does a thing no one has ever done, which is to go to the realm of the dead as a living person. Right. And he believes if he sings a beautiful song that maybe he can change the rules of the, of the world. And then at the end, you know, his downfall is that he, he begins to doubt, he loses faith. So right. his faith has felt like a mythic aspect of his character and and is very baked into a lot of his songs his um like the wedding song you know he's he's telling Eurydice that the the trees and the rivers and the birds are gonna provide for them you know which is um just a sort of an outlandish idea this idealism I mean a little bit like Don Quixote or something as well the as you said the impossible yes exactly and I think the way that that translated in previous iterations of the show was a sort of like a cockiness on uh. behalf of Orpheus. Not that I ever intended that, but it was sort of in the writing. Like the very first thing that comes out of his mouth to Eurydice is come home with me. Because <laughs> he's so, you know, he's like so confident. And and there's a way in which people, you couldn't get with him. You couldn't get behind that character. Got you. That Too much felt, certainty, not enough yeah, ambiguity. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And he also in different versions of the show was more of like a soapbox political character. Like he had more moments where he was like indictment of the this, this system. It's still in there, but I do think that the way he's been painted for this production, and I say that because who knows, maybe there'll be another, <laughs> you know, another version for the tour or something. He's more of like a naive, there's a, that word naive is even used to describe him. He's an mm. artist who, who, um, can see the way the world could be, but he has a hard time living in the world that is, right. you know, which feels like very familiar to me. Then it's sort of an archetype of like the artist that can't get their clothes in the lawn, in the washing machine, or, you know, <laughs> but they can like write a poem, but they can't, you know, make breakfast or whatever. He's sort of dialed into a different frequency and you sort of love and hate those characters at the same time, right? Because you're like, get it together. And, but you're also like, but it's such a beautiful music you're making. It's hard to write the poet for the same reason it's hard to market the poet, which is that it's a sort of a hard thing, hard essence to put your finger on and you have to really get it right. I mean, I think you do. I think of mm. these songs and they are genuinely beautiful, but like oftentimes when people try to bring the poet, the artist, whatever, into literature, like it just doesn't fly because it's like, you have to make a real poet. Yes, that's right. I know, I know. I know. And I would say that his kind of politics have become less soapboxy over the years and more more like he surprises himself with them. Do you know what I mean? Right. More like because he's a sort of an innocent who's suddenly thrust into the world of the underworld, which is violent and exploitative and the rules are the rules. Yeah. There's like a rude awakening for him that like oh this is how the world is you know it's more personal in a way it becomes like accidentally political exactly yeah and i think that's part of the tragedy of then all these other people getting behind him like lead us out of here (laughs) and he is never you know cut out to do that well and that's that's what i was thinking about you know i was thinking about what it means to be an artist as well and to like you know particularly to be an artist in the economic reality of america at this time and like 
you know, that sense that you should keep faith in the thing that you're doing, that this is where your heart is. This is, the, you know, but then you have all these forces from outside telling you, we don't care. You right, know, right, it's right. real hard to make a living, you know, totally. It, it would be much easier to go do this or do that or the other thing. And so I saw that as a also kind of a metaphor for that struggle, him coming up out of hell and other characters are telling him, you have to act like, you know, you know, you have to kind of fake right. it till you make it. Yes. Yeah. And you never, you can't really blame Eurydice for leaving him, right? <laughs> like in Hadestown, she, you know, she, um, in the original myth, she's bitten by by a snake and she dies and goes to the underworld. So there's not a lot of agency there. But in this version of the story, she chooses to go to this essentially like a company town where she's going to trade. She's going to live a, a lifeless life, but she'll be she'll have security right. and safety and uh, sort of comfort from the elements. And she chooses that. And, you know, there's a one moment that has been problematic in the writing. It's been rewritten many times, but where Orpheus is working on his epic song, you know, he's trying to work out what's wrong with the world and how it's going to get fixed. And he just doesn't notice that the world around him has gotten so bad. In this case, the the fight between the king of industry and the queen of the natural world has right. created this supernatural storm, which is very frightening. And and essentially, it's Orpheus is like obliviousness to the real world. That means that his girlfriend is like, I can't, I can't stay. I have to go. And that's where we get that line, you know, to the world that we dream of and the one we live in now. Now about that tension between trying to make something make something that is new and that is beautiful and that is impossible and at the same time to somehow somehow live in and accept what is and yeah. celebrate it yeah as well. yeah and maybe like the impossibility of doing both things i haven't thought too deeply <laughs> i mean i have but i you know like in a way orpheus's failure at the end it's interesting that he's a hero for all of us I and mean, he's like theaters all over the world named the Orphe Orpheum or right, whatever, right. even though he's not the hero who won. He has remained so important to us for all, for, for all time, even though he doesn't win at the end. He's not a hero like Odysseus who comes home or, right. you know, but it's because he tried the impossible thing right. that we revere him. And I guess it is, it does have to do with what you were talking about. Like what, what can we expect from artists? What can we expect from art and music? To what extent can those things change the world or not. And um, Billy Bragg started covering one of the songs from Hadestown several years ago, this song, Why We Build the Wall. Right. He's so awesome. I love Billy so much. Um, yeah, and, and to hear him sing that song was just like, made my <laughs> life, you know, it's a, he's really amazing. So he came to the premiere of the show in London and I had a good hang with him after and he was saying, he was talking about how he had often asked himself, could a song change the world? Could my songs change the world? Right, you know, right. And that at a certain point he had decided, no, they can't. But the audience members might. That the song could yeah. move someone in the audience and then that audience member could maybe go on to do something that would change the world. That it's not the art itself, but the sort of effect it might have on someone. When we look at the artists that we love the most, and I'm specifically thinking of music, it's very easy to fall into this trap of like, they did this good thing and this good thing, and then they did this not so good mm, thing, mm -hmm. and now I'm kind of not feeling them overall, right? Yeah. I think that's a sort of narrative trap we fall into. Like we're looking, we're expecting them to just be something or continue to be something or whatever that I think 
is probably something that as an artist you have to, to survive, have to at some point be like, fuck that. How can you live in that? You, you know? can't repeat yourself. And so you have to go some new direction and see where it leads. I love looking at the entire body of work of an artist who's been around for a long time. Right. You know, someone like Bruce Springsteen or Leonard Cohen or Lucinda Williams. I think of Ryan Adams also because he mm. just put out so many records and a lot of them I don't care for and then some of them are just so good. I love to think that someone could continue to come sort of in and out of contact with like the muse or or the mom the cultural moment, you know. Right. At different times in their life and that you could experience the breadth of their thing and love them for continuing to make the effort. I think that's probably the only way any artist can be is, as you say, coming into and out of contact with the muse. I don't, yeah. I don't think there is anything yeah, yeah. else. Like, yeah, I feel this way about live performing. You know, I, it's been a while. Like, I haven't been doing a lot of shows because I've been working on this thing for so long. Mm. But performing, you know, there's so many that goes on in the, your mind. And it's like, oh, God, do they like it? I don't know. Does is the sound weird, you know, right, right, it, right, like right. what's happening? Am I going to remember the next chord? You know, did I say something charming in between, before that song? <laughs> All that stuff. But then there's also sometimes that moment where, which I've witnessed in other performers and, I, and I've had the experience myself of like, oh my God, I'm just channeling this. Like I'm just standing here and the music is coming through me right. and I, and I can stand back and enjoy it along with the audience that, that, can happen. And there's a, there's a thing like in um, the Arab world when, you know, these whirling dervishes or like, yeah, yeah, like yeah, really yeah. great performances, Sufism, yeah. like people go, Allah, like they'll say, you know, it's like that God is coming through in that moment. Right. And the powerful thing I think about seeing an artist is not that they come out there and they're perfect from moment one to moment to the end of the show. Like I'm not actually interested in perfection. Right. I love to see someone come out there and be awkward and do their thing and they clear their throat and it's out of tune and whatever. And then they come into their powers in a moment. They come into the powers and it's like, holy cow, that just happened that, that just happened in that vessel of that person. That's right. And then it goes away. And for me, like, even 20 seconds of that, if that happened in a show, if I felt like I came into the powers for 20 seconds, that is a good show. Like, that is worth it. I remember the first time I saw Ani DeFranco, like, oh, I, yeah. I was probably 25 or something. And, and she came out, and, like, I was shocked by how goofy and yeah. sort of fragile she yeah. acted, you know, like, to, to, but yeah. not, not in a bad way, but just, like, in a very playful and childlike way that I just what hadn't associated with her. Yeah. And then she started to play. And man, I thought her guitar was going to explode. Mm -hmm. You know, playing that song out of range or whatever, yes. all that like percussive finger picking. I was like, you know, and yeah, the God yeah. speaks through them. You yeah, know? yeah. Like, yeah. I totally have had that experience with seeing her like, <laughs> I, you know, I've opened a bunch of stuff for her when I used to be on her label and, and just, right, she has that way of interacting. It's very, uh, it's very in the moment and it's different night to night. Like she, and she talk about like what sandwich she ate or whatever, you know, it's just these right, mundane right. things, but it's kind of delightful because she's just, and sometimes it's just like monosyllabic, you know, she's very, <laughs> it's very simple and um, not polished at all. And then she gets in the song and it's just like a hurricane coming out of her. Real and vulnerable and like little in a way and yeah. so freaking big at the yeah, same time. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. you do that too. Actually. Yeah, and it's nice <laughs> to see that in 
someone to what to witness it in a performer because it's like, oh, like I'm, and I'm not speaking about Ani here, but like other performers I've seen, it's like, oh yeah, I'm awkward and insecure and small and whatever, but then that could happen to me. That kind of power could come through. So then it's sort of about work ethic, to use a kind of ugly phrase, of, in terms of the courage or whatever it is to just keep doing it, keep getting up there, keep writing songs. I don't like work ethic because it's it sometimes feels like hammering oneself into, like it just feels like the opposite of art. But I mean, for you, like in terms of- We could of, talk about that for like- yeah, four hours. Uh, well, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do a couple minutes anyway. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, yeah, I want to know what that, what that's like for you, because I, I know for myself, I, most of my visible career has been this kind of thing, talking, writing, whatever. Yeah. But you know, there's another, there's a secret artist in me as well. And yeah, like it's sort of tough to know what the right balance is between sort of letting the muse speak through one and sitting down to make the thing. Totally. I mean, I don't know what the answer to that is. <laughs> like, I can tell you what my experience is. Uh, that's what is, I want to know about, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about writing here because I, and I feel like I'm more sort of ambitious about writing than performing, or that's always mm -hmm. felt like mm -hmm. more like my identity or whatever. But I, I um, for me, like, oftentimes there's, there's like a, that flash of inspiration, like I was saying at the beginning of mm. our talk, and then so much time so much time that goes into trying to bring it like to fruition you know right. and obviously with this show it's been a dozen years i mean it's crazy it's yeah. crazy to think about but even like the, something as simple as a song years go by where i'm like i don't know what the second verse of that song is i can't <laughs> find it and i might bang my head against the wall about it for like months i mean it's a it's a really you can get in into the beating of the self up about I should go ahead and finish that totally. song. Totally. Right? And yeah. and I'm not sure if it's useful or not. I guess it at some level it's worked for me that <laughs> you know. All I know is that sometimes it's inexplicably easy art, right? It's like inexplicably easy, but it can't always be like that. Right. And so how do you deal with the other times? They I I think, you know, I probably should lean towards more kind of space and perspective and like faith and patience and waiting like stepping away like going for a yeah, walk like listen yeah. to some other music like whatever but I, I I will sit there I'll just sit there in the concrete cave <laughs> you know <laughs> looking for the rhyme all day and then leave. I mean, this is. I love that. That's. I love that. That's what where where you're writing. Like I've been thinking recently about how we have all these sort of concept recording space albums where like the whole marketing of the album is like. I mean, even Justin Vernon, right? He was up in a cabin somewhere yeah. in the middle of nowhere. Or yeah, right. Tom Waits rents a barn in you know Indiana or whatever, and mm -hmm. you're in a concrete box with no window. <laughs> In yeah. Gowanus, which does yeah. not feel in, like it would Somehow necessarily Gowanus be. Somehow makes it worse, right? It's like, <laughs> next to a super fun site, yeah, yeah like yeah. a super toxic waste site. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> One thing is that I do think collaboration helps. I do think that's a real thing mm -hmm. to not be alone in it. Although I, there's much of it, for me anyway, has been like I have to be alone. I have to be just lo lonesome valley. A right, bit. Right. But also I've had these like pretty powerful uh, charmed experiences with with folk music, with like reinterpreting old songs. Mm. 
Okay, right, um, right, right. First of all, like working on, I guess Hades Town is connected because it is an interpretation of a, of a, of a really old story. But um, working on those ballads with Jefferson, and I'm doing this new project now with these two other players. One is Josh Kaufman, who's a guitarist and producer who um, works with Josh Ritter. Right. Really incredible player in mind. And and then also um, Eric D. Johnson, who's from the Fruit Bats, if you know that band. Yep, yep. So we've started this band is called Bonnie Light Horseman. Yeah, I couldn't find any of them. Is it like online? Is it nothing? Oh yeah, is we out? have an Instagram. Yeah. All we have is an Instagram. Okay. I was looking for I was trying to listen. Yeah. yeah. We've made an album, but it's just not out yet. Okay. But hopefully okay. soon. Cool. Um but we started working on these like very loose mystical interpretations of really old folk music. Oh cool. And that stuff feels it that has felt so weirdly easy to me. And the part of my brain that like I usually live in that cracks the whip is like, this can't be good. Like it's too easy, you know, it should be right, hard. Right, right, Art right. has to be hard. <laughs> and um, but actually I, I I really love the music. I feel very proud of and excited about it. And and part of it is the removal of the ego from the process yeah. because it's like it's not it's not quite ours, like right. it is, but it's not. And right. it's these themes that have existed forever. And um and it's a joy and a delight to rearrange them in ways that feel like they can speak emotionally today. That sounded like <laughs> that sounded like a I don't know like a like I was in the back room coming up with some kind of concept for like right right you know, right right, right. No, but I meant but it in an earnest way that I, I mean, yeah. that it the, those songs feel emotion like I I feel them in my heart. It's not like a research project, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel them very alive and and emotional. Um, I get that. So it's yeah, it's sort of like a it's a mechanism. All of these things, collaboration, whatever, it's a mechanism to kind of like get yourself out of your head and out of your damn self. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> which can be very <laughs> paralyzing and perfectionist and that kind of stuff. And I think, I mean, to be in your own head. And can we also be that have way. like unhelpful myths, I think, of the artist, the, the, the lone artist or whatever that are in yeah. our head that are pressuring us to be somehow able to create worlds out of nothing. Yeah, yeah. Time. And And what's amazing about it is also, <laughs> I feel like it's, it's also a fallacy that you're coming up with that stuff yourself from scratch because right. we're not, you know? Right. It's like everything we have was given to us, you know? And the music we play and sing, the notes in the scale, even the words, the images, the stories we tell, they they have their reverberations of a thing that's been, you know, right. echoing for centuries. And it's like to claim them as our own is not even really legit. Maybe to go about writing as though you were just interpreting. There's something to that. Yeah, that makes sense. I haven't achieved that Zen state yet, but I'm. But I. But I'm. Well, I'll work it sounds on it like after. these yeah. things are helping, though. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. The Bonnie Light Horseman thing was a very. It felt like the complete opposite of Haiti Sound for me, which because nice. in Haiti Sound it's like there's a whole bunch of people that are going to have notes about <laughs> any lyric choice I would make. Mm. There's a director, there's a dramaturg, there's producers, and they're all going to be like, well, does that advance the plot of this character in this moment? <laughs> right. You know, and uh, to remove that side, which I, and I also like, I, I've loved that process. I'm very like geeky and I like enjoyed that process in a crazy way. But to work on this thing with these guys, and we also... Um, we went to Berlin to this residency that is put together by a bunch of people, but but mainly Justin Vernon and Aaron Dessner from the National. Okay. Um, it's called People, and cool. it's really like a 
It's an artist residency that is a week of just focus on making new work in collaboration with other people, and then a weekend of shows. And um, it includes like some artists that are quite well known, and then many who are not. But it feels like a totally like it's not about right. where people are at in their career or in, their, in terms of how known they are. It's, it's really like an about open just, space of possibility. Yes. Where, yeah. And it was really like transformative, life changing. It felt. And we recorded most of the album that we'll put out hopefully this year at that space. And and it was a very, we would just, we had this sort of the spine of these reinterpretations of this folk music. And we would just grab people out of the hall. People would be like walking by the staves or like uh, Andrew Bard from the Bar Brothers, the drummer. And we'd just be like, hey, do you want to, could you come and oh, cool. <laughs> just track this for three minutes? And they'd be like, yeah. And they come in, learn it, not even know it that well. And I felt like I... I really got for the first time that Bob Dylan thing about how it's better if people don't know the music that well in the studio. Do you know? Right. There's like a myth about that, that he would sort of not let people play it too many times because he didn't want them to know it that well. Right. So it would be fresh. Yeah. And I always felt like that that was weird and like I would like people to know it. But I, I do think there's a palpable sense of presence when people are still learning something. Right. And it's not set in stone in any way. Well, and just in, in general, that sort of space of discovery and possibility, yes. like I don't know why I'm obsessed with marketing, but it seems the opposite of the way that music is sold and presented to us. You know, it's like just, you know, on and on and on about this cool person, this cool person, look how cool, you know, coming out of here doing this, this, you know, it's like all about the individual. It's never about the play. It's never about the discovery. It's never about possibility. And, totally. and I think it's the enemy of art. This is really real. And I think <laughs> if you were to look at like the sort of mission statement of the people residency. By the way, there's a, there's a small version of it coming up in Brooklyn uh, at Pioneer Works if you're around. Cool, cool. Um, but uh, that's a big part of their mission statement is to create a space for art making that is not connected to how any of this art is gonna get marketed. And it is, I think, probably been, has been said before, but it's also about like process versus product, right? Right. Like in a way, you have to trust the process, and that means trust it, even if there might not be a product at the end. Right, <laughs> right. right. And if there ever will be marketing, leave it to the people who do the marketing. Totally, <laughs> totally. So what I thought might happen has indeed happened, which is that we, I have enjoyed this conversation so much that we've used all of our time oh, just talking. Okay. And so okay. the the surprise video format of our show that some audience members might be expecting is not going to happen. That's okay. It's, <laughs> a, it's like we were in the process and we just weren't like worried about what the product was going to be. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe the last thing I'll say is that in Town in the Broadway production, there's this moment, which I'm not going to describe because people should experience it. All I'll say is that it involves some lamps. Where I saw how music and stagecraft could come together to produce that, that kind of thing we were talking about, about like the God speaking through the work. I mean, something completely different that could not have existed from the music alone, but in the tension of like what was happening on the stage and the songs. There's no way to express it that doesn't sound stupid, but it was transcendent. Those swinging lamps, like I, and 
the other things that uh, I won't talk away. about. Spoiler but alert. She said they were swinging. Oh, okay. yeah, they All did right. swing. <laughs> That's interesting because that was one of the very first things that Rachel said when I started to work on her on this piece with her. She had listened to the studio record, and she was like, can I just tell you a, a thing that came into my head? And she was like, and I hear that song, Wait For Me. Picture these these industrial lamps swinging out over the audience, and we've had the lamps for several productions. But there's a way in which they were never quite anatomically right until the Walter Kerr Theater. Like there's something about it. Is it about? So I was thinking you have to, I suppose, really work hard on making sure that the length of the ropes, you know, or the cords, and that the force with which the actors are pushing is right so that rhythmically it's like, because it's perfect. I mean, it swells perfectly. Yeah. I'm <laughs> sure there was some kind of meeting with like the scenic, the props people about Everyone. like how heavy does the lamp have to be for it to, yeah, yeah. like a like, physics question from hell. Yeah, the, the like, world we dream of and the world we live in. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but that is, I think, it is one of the most thrilling visual moments of the show. And For sure. it's exciting that it's now connected to the real possibility that the character of Orpheus has magic and can change the world with his mm. music. You know, mm. the music like couldn't be simpler in terms of what he's singing, right. but its effect on the world is like seismic. I'm going to tell the audience, I keep wanting to call you Anais, but because that's how, like, you know how when you read, you learn a word through reading, I've known you so long. I've been listening to, you know, so many times to your songs, and you are Anais to me, but your name is actually Anais. It is, but you know, <laughs> I, I'm named for Anais, and, yeah, yeah. And, and in French it would be Anais. It's just my parents have messed with the pronunciation, and I, I'll never, <laughs> now, like, never live it down. I don't think I'll ever learn it the proper way. But it's Ana okay. Anais Mitchell, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And Hades Town opens the seventeenth of April. The seventeenth of April, which this show is actually scheduled to come on May fifth, I believe. So that will have been a week. But if you have any way of seeing it, even if you have to sneak into the theater, don't tell Anais's producers that I said that. <laughs> but uh, but go go go. I just got back from a 10-day vacation in Costa Rica with my family to the exhilarating news that Town, the musical, was nominated for 14 Tony Awards, more than any other show this year, including Best Musical, Book, and Score. You go, Aeneas, and the whole amazing cast and crew of that beautiful, transcendent musical. If you like what you're hearing on Think Again... Come on over to my too infrequently updated website, jasongotts.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com. You can email me from there about anything at all that's on your mind or join my mailing list. I'll be back next week with something very different indeed, and I hope that you'll be here to join me. Opened her legs and let me out Hungry as a prairie dog 
brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.